Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another uh, podcast on my Gaudi Mitz Best 22 podcast and YouTube channel. I'm joined again today by two repeat customers, if I can put it that way. Chris Altieri, it's been a while since uh, Chris has been on the show. And Mark Stallman, it hasn't been that long since I've had Mark on here. I think we did two shows, Mark, a uh, few, few months back. And so it's good to have you back. Today's topic, um, it's going to be fairly wide ranging. It relates to some of the topics Mark and I were talking about before with regard to uh, the digital revolution and the implications of the digital revolution for our time. But more specifically, what provoked uh, this conversation is the rise in so-called artificial intelligence, uh, AI, as they call it, and the significance of AI uh, for going forward. Um, just as a preface, I just read an article last week by some computer expert who said that the whole hullabaloo over AI is overblown, uh, that the great challenge that will be ahead of us is quantum computing uh, mm -hmm. and not necessarily the hyper algorithmic, super algorithmic uh, sort of AI that, that everyone's talking about now. But be that as it may, I'm not really conversant in any of these things. I am a, a confirmed Luddite in many ways. Uh, and, and so I'm going to I'm going to uh, Christopher Altieri I had an article, I think it was last week now, two weeks ago, whatever it was, Mar uh, uh, Chris, on artificial intelligence in Catholic World Report. And we were just talking off screen about how, well, that was two weeks ago, and he barely remembers what he wrote. Uh, but that's OK. I'm, I'm sure there's still something in the reservoir there. So to kickstart this conversation, perhaps you could summarize for us, Chris, so just not the entire article, but maybe nutshell it for us. You, you sort of made the point in the article, if my own memory serves, you know, that the, the church has got to deal with this thing called artificial intelligence. But it doesn't seem as if anybody in the hierarchy, the curia in the Vatican or whatever, seems to be taking it uh, with with a great deal of seriousness. So maybe you oh, could get us started. I, I don't know about that. Uh I, I, I wouldn't put it quite that way. Uh, there are several initiatives in and around the Vatican. Uh, lots of resources, uh, both at the Lateran University and in the uh, Pontifical Council for, I'm sorry, the Dicastery for Culture and whatever else it is now. Uh, the changes in nomenclature. I can't even keep up with them, Larry. Don't even ask me to try. <laughs> uh, although, you know, um, there's, there's lots of stuff and I'm sure we'll get into all of it, uh, or at least some of it. All right. Uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the article, if memory serves was about the, uh, the announcement that the Pope will dedicate his, uh, message for the 2024 World Day of Peace to the topic of artificial intelligence and right. artificial intelligence as a challenge to peace in the world. Uh, frankly, I think it's a great topic. Uh, and one of the things I, I'm absolutely sure I say uh, in that piece is, is that the the church has resources within her own great reservoir of expertise in humanity on which to draw. She's uh, uniquely placed. And Rome and the Vatican are uh, uniquely placed and positioned 
to address the topic. It's a voice that we need to hear. But I expressed, if I could put it this way, the hope not entirely uh, lacking in confidence uh, that Pope Francis could lead from the top down with this message and uh, really draw on uh, the church's expertise in humanity to frame the discussion, to set the tone, uh, and to help guide the church uh, toward doing what she does best instead of trying to do what other people do better and frankly know it. Very good. Mark? Which is the egghead stuff, right? The technical yeah. stuff. Well, yeah. You know, and and I was about to say when I when I first introduced you and, and to talk about your article that, you know, that perhaps it's not the church doesn't take this seriously. It's that she just doesn't have the expertise right now to deal with this topic in, 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 in the proper way, uh, because they, they, I mean, in a sense, they're out of their league um, and, and as they're going to have to have a lot of input from a lot of experts who know what they're talking about and who are conversant with in a sense, the Catholic faith or the broader uh, humanities or the humanistic tradition in order to make sense of all of this for us. Mark, let's turn it over to you. What, what are you what are your initial thoughts on this whole topic of artificial intelligence and the church and the challenge that this proposes to us? Well, I think you're exactly right, Larry, um, which is to say that uh, Francis is probably uniquely qualified um, and so, therefore, a, a speech by him on World Peace Day could be a, a, a very important um, and highlighted contribution to this uh, discussion. Now, what I hope he will, will do in that case is return to Romano Guardini. Guardini, as you recall, was to have been the subject of um, Jorge Bergoglio's uh, uh, now Francis, his uh, PhD thesis, and he, which he was working on in Frankfurt um, before uh, Rome asked him to, or ordered him to return to Argentina to deal with the Jesuit um, problem, and particularly liberation theology uh, problem there. Um, he, uh, in fact, moved in, um, as is usually the case, to Jesuit house in Buenos Aires, uh, and then it was thrown out after two weeks. The, the, the Argentine Jesuits had figured out that, that he was um, uh, he was there to uh, police and, and ultimately um, uh, change the course of events. And uh, I believe he said when when he finally um, was uh, raised to Pope, that uh, he had not visited a Jesuit house in that uh, interim time period from 1992 uh, until his election. Uh, but at the same time, I believe one of his first communications uh, as uh, as uh, Francis was with the uh, Jesuit uh, general and, uh, uh, and so forth. So uh, in all of this, however, and the contributions you're absolutely correct again. The church is going to have to solicit uh, a great deal uh, of outside help in this. The problem is that much of that outside help 
has uh, serious agendas uh, of their own. And in particular, the Silicon Valley contingent uh, in this uh, is, is going to be uh, trying to be uh, as much as possible uh, left outside of, of any serious scrutiny. So we're, we're, we're now in a, a period where uh, people are asking whether or not uh, ChatGPT is a massive uh, copyright violation. Uh, I suspect it is. Um, as uh, those uh, lawyers, which is none of us, uh, will remind us that copyright violation happens when you make a copy of something. Uh, and and so, in fact, uh, the training sets for ChatGPT and beyond uh, have made copies uh, of an enormous amount of copyrighted works. So this is the, the amongst the technologists right now is that they are um, uh, that people are figuring out what they're doing, and that people are going to raise uh, serious objections, legal uh, and moral objections to what they're doing. So th this is a bit of a minefield. And my my suggestion, um, if I uh, have an opportunity to give one uh, to Francis, is that he go back to Guardini, and that he, um, in particular. And I don't believe this has ever been spoken about publicly. And, and so I'm, I'll be very interested. Uh, ultimately, I hope to find out whether Francis is uh, fully aware of this. But the last commentary by uh, Guardini on this topic was delivered in 1958 in Munich at a technical school, an engineering school. So this was effectively addressing the first generation of computer scientists. Uh, that he had access to. And he delivered a lecture um, uh, titled um, in, in, in English, um, uh, The Machines and Man. No, and, well. Uh, well, really, um, this was, uh, uh, at the moment, this is available in collected works, uh, but it is uh, of Guardini, but it is, it is most typically read as a, almost an appendix to um, uh, letters from Le Cuomo, uh, particularly, um, and the Germans added this in their version of that in the early 60s. And the currently available uh, English language translation published by ISI uh, has it as effectively an appendix. So the letters, of course, are written in the 20s. Mm -hmm. And so here we have now uh, late 50s, very last comment and very much near the end as, as we as we know, Guardini was offered uh, a red hat and uh, declined, and his health was not, not very good at, at that point. But if Francis um, or others, doesn't have to be Francis, uh, in this whole process, would go back to that particular essay and then focus on how Guardini concludes the essay, which is to call for a, a worldwide uh, organization, uh, precisely the thought that you were um, asking for. And so what would uh, be absolutely uh, amazing, I'm not going to hold my breath, but would be amazing, would be if the result of a discussion of Guardini's Machines and Man would actually result in something which is broader than the church uh, as a discussion about the implications of this. 
The implications of artificial intelligence, um, and I think, again, you have struck the right note here, which is to say that uh, uh, Wall Street, which has driven much of the hype associated with generative AI, has absolutely overdone it. The, uh, the specific um, way this is noticed uh, would be in the value of the stock of NVIDIA. Uh, the company NVIDIA has has been on a massive tear. And in fact, the AI effect in stocks um, is such that everybody has to have an AI story. Um, there is no way that uh, uh, chat GPT and its um, uh, comparables from the other uh, vendors. This is from a company called uh, OpenAI, originally begun as a, as a nonprofit, but now a for-profit company, largely owned by Microsoft. So effectively, Microsoft is promoting something here, which is spilled over way beyond any justification. So the reading that, that you have uh, just pointed to is roughly correct. Um, there are not tens or hundreds of billions of dollars of value to be unlocked by chat GPT. That, that is simply not going to happen. The impact of AI, however, will be uh, enormous on all of us personally and in on society, but not on the grounds in which it is being typically discussed today, which is why I think that the, that the Vatican needs to catalyze using Guardini as the model needs to catalyze a wider discussion of the implications outside of the excitement, outside of the stock prices, outside of the hype, outside of all of these, these presentations. Because this is, um, as many in the technology business would say, there is, uh, in, in fact, in the beginning with any of these topics, there is an overblown uh, positive reaction. Everybody wants a piece of it. Then it crashes, and that's going to happen here. So there will be a crash in the interest in AI. But all of that is obscuring what is really going on underneath this. And among the various things that are going on underneath this are literally replacing human beings in, in many critical social roles. The one I like to start with is uh, the military. Um, it is absolutely unavoidable at this point. And if we needed... A lesson Ukraine has taught it to us. No government in the world today wants to put young men on a battlefield and throw them into a meat grinder. And, and so the alternative to that, of course, is robot soldiers. And so all of this discussion about the ethics of AI, as if the most important ethical questions associated with AI are uh, whether uh, AI says something that offends somebody, wh whether there's a uh, implied insult in, in something that comes out of a generative AI. Um, that's not uh, the problem. Um, the ethical problem is that we're heading into a situation in which uh, robots will be fighting against robots, and the ethics of man-made machines destroying other man-made machines with massive human implications uh, hanging in the balance, needs to be focused on, needs to be much better understood. Um, and secondly, and Guardini was also, of course, in the letters. Um, he talked uh, a great deal uh, 
uh, in the letters about the effects of these technology on the humans. And and so the contrast between steam boats on Lake Cuomo and, and uh, sailboats on Lake Cuomo and how each of those has a different uh, collection of effects on the humans. The I would hope that any global organization with the Vatican's um, guidance and with Guardini um, uh, in the center of the discussion would deal very carefully with the impact of, of our attempts to build artificial humans on the real humans. Uh, what happens uh, to... Yeah. Well, no, I, I listening to you, Joe, it's worth mentioning in this regard. And I, if we were doing a, a different kind of conversation, I want to go back and sort of check the timeline on some of the things about Pope Francis in Argentina at the very beginning. But uh, I, um, I, I mentioned that mostly uh, not, not not to fact check you, but because I, I, I wanted to make a note of it for myself. And this way, I'm I'm less likely to forget. I mean, he was the uh, provincial superior there, and um, so I, I'd want to be uh, pretty precise uh, about that. But it doesn't really matter. Um, the 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 thing that I was keying into just now, and, and apologies for interrupting and jumping in on you, uh, Mark. But but the uh, well. The Vatican's been talking about killer robots and the dangers of them for about 20 years uh, at the level of the UN. You know, I, there's there was a while I remember when I was on the news desk at Vatican Radio, there'd be at least one speech to the UN where there was a high level meeting on the subject, uh, you know, once a year or so at least. Um, and it's so it's 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 been a thing that they've been. Uh, They've been pounding away at for quite some time. Uh, the question, I think, maybe is, you know, whether the folks in the diplomatic corps are going to be talking to the folks in culture and going to be talking to the folks at the ladder and whoever it is who's uh, organizing the latest dog and pony show. Uh, yeah, I think, but it's, uh, Chris, it's part Chris, of the conversation. Uh-oh, kind of frozen up here. Hopefully it comes back. Damn it. And a collection of, of fiefdoms with Kultura and various others. Um, we, we have uh, the Minerva dialogues that are ongoing. There's a lot of chatter about these things. But my recommendation here, uh, just to stress this again, is that more or less, nobody cares about what the Vatican has to say when they're talking to themselves or when they're promoting uh, from within. <clears throat> that everybody, um, United Nations, um, uh, major professional organizations, corporations, everybody. Of these sorts of efforts. 
And so my recommendation again here um, is that, in fact, the Vatican take a leadership role in a broader social conversation about the implications of AI, way beyond the hype, way beyond killer robots, uh, but in, in fact, all the way into the questions of what does, not how do we use or misuse these machines, but how in fact do these machines wind up altering and using us and and so that um, the the recommend the cyber tech uh, theology book that you referenced earlier, which uh, as you recall when we talked about this, I had actually bought and read in 2015, uh, eight years ago. Uh, it turns out that the primary source for that book is Marshall McLuhan, as the author states uh, in his uh, introduction. Uh, Marshall McLuhan has been left out of these conversations and must be drawn back into the center of it, along with Guardini. There was an attempt by my center to deliver a dramatic performance of a dialogue between Marshall McLuhan and Romano Guardini. They never met each other. They overlapped in time, but uh, they didn't ever actually get together. There was an attempt to make that presentation in Rome, which was then thwarted for a variety of, of reasons and not pointing fingers here at anybody. But we need to revive these sorts of efforts. We need to get at far more fundamental view. Um, and the Vatican's potential role as a leader in doing that, as opposed to making just simply making statements on their own, as opposed to uh, uh, fighting uh, or building various uh, further uh, ninja castles within the overall bureaucracy. Um, the time has come really for some leadership, some leadership in this conversation, and it needs to be a moral leadership. And the church's role in this, I think, is enormously important. Yeah, and I could I would like to respond too to what Chris said about, yeah, it is true. The Vatican has been uh, saying things about the dangers of a robotic culture and that sort of thing, and ro robot soldiers for a long time. Uh, the fact of the matter is, though, they weren't wrong. Uh, the fact is, is that robot technology, and I mean, we throw cybernetic technology, whatever you want to call it, has advanced exponentially over the past 20 years to the point now where probably within 10 years, robotics are going to be extremely advanced. And we really are going, I mean, I know for a fact and reading up on it, you know, that our, our military, the Chinese military, are definitely looking into the creation of cyber soldiers, uh, robot yeah. soldiers. They have to. Yeah, uh, because, you know, in, if, if, uh, if I mean, uh, of course, uh, to think it's a new Cold War, the America, the Pentagon is thinking if we don't build the robot soldiers, the Chinese will. We need to we need to have robots flying jet airplanes. We need to have robots piloting tanks uh, and to just com completely basically have human beings reduced to just in the background with a joystick, you know, looking at a computer screen, maybe coordinating some of these things. But that really is, I think, on the horizon uh, ahead of us. And, and, and also to go along and then I'll turn it back over to you guys with, with, with what um, Mark is saying with regard to the human implications. of it. I think this is the enormous contribution, obviously, that the Vatican can make, which is 
what does this the, the great crisis beyond robot soldiers, beyond jobs being lost, beyond, you know, the sort of uh, Terminator scenario, science fiction, dystopian scenarios beyond all of that is the deeper question that is now raised by AI and robotics. What does it mean to be a human being? What the heck is human? And Mark, I think I got this line from you, maybe from somebody else. But I think it was from you. Okay. Where the, it's, it's not so much. It's not so much that we're worried that that robots will now be more human like. It's now that we begin to perceive ourselves as more robot like that. We're simply in They're not superhumans. We're just inferior robots as we're, we're organic robots, a very materialistic view of us. We're brain matter robots, and they're much better at being robots than we are. Right. The term act actually that we use for that is flesh bot. Mm -hmm. And the, the examples uh, are, are very widespread. I'll just mention one of them. Um, it turns out that Amazon uh, has, uh, uh, of course, a, a massive workforce uh, working in, in their warehouses and, and so forth. But uh, literally in the last couple of months, um, it turns out that Amazon has begun uh, to uh, discuss robots that can uh, uh, do everything that today's flesh bots are doing, working at Amazon. And then this has all sorts of implications uh, all the way through the, the entire uh, workforce. And the Vatican has a long record in encyclicals and beyond discussing the dignity of work and the enormous importance of work for humans. And so the, the, the human dignity component of Catholic social teaching, three pillars, um, uh, solidarity, okay, subsidiarity, uh, and human dignity. Uh, no one can speak with more authority on the topic of human dignity, um, and in particular in organizing others to come together to discuss this, because it has to be much more widespread than just the Vatican. Um, Rome owns that topic and has owned it for a long time now. It's integral to Catholic social teaching. So for the, for the, the church to bring that out and highlight that, center a conversation on that, um, this could radically change the situation, which is, which is now, uh, as we've already mentioned, uh, it's been tossed off to the wolves of Wall Street to try to handle this. It's been, been tossed off to um, uh, backroom uh, agreements and deals and mergers and so forth that are, that are being organized around this, Not, none of which is helping us, none of which is actually getting us um, uh, out of this sense that we have sailed into a, uh, a whirlpool, um, the image of the maelstrom, uh, in which there's no way to escape. Uh, and so we can maybe delay uh, this or that implication of this, but unless at this stage, and we are early in this process, everyone agrees, unless at this stage we, we have a serious human conversation about what we're doing to ourselves in this whole process, um, well, we we have a uh, um, perhaps a decade uh, to work through some of these critical issues, 
though we don't have a lifetime. Um, our children will depend upon the decisions uh, that we make now. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, before, I, I have a, several million things I want to say in response to that, but Chris, do you, I want to give you a chance to chime in here. Oh, boy. Uh, it's going to take me a minute to process all of that, I think. Um, well, you, you want me to and, go ahead? You know, notwithstanding that some of it I've heard, uh, you know, some of it I haven't, uh, but pretty, pretty recently, and I realized, you know, I thought maybe I would have something to say but I, I want to sit with it a minute. I will, however, take you up on your uh, your your offer, Larry, uh, and and ask uh, a question. Sure. Um, one and let's start with the clarifying question. You operated, but didn't really draw explicitly a pretty sharp and a pretty clear, and I suspect a pretty important distinction mark. Uh, uh, between uh, ethical AI and moral agency considered broadly and generally, right? Can can you drill down on that a little bit? Sure. Um, the, the secular um, engineering world has uh, become a part of the uh, conversations that, that uh, 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 often take uh, political overtones to them. But the, the notion that um, controlling human behavior, which social science has been largely dedicated to throughout the 20th century, this question of control, this is now spilled over. And, and in fact, we now have, uh, uh, let me be the first to mention on a, on a Larry Chap podcast, Oliver Anthony. Uh, a quite remarkable thing has happened in, I guess you would call it pop culture. And uh, this, uh, uh, I will, uh, with all respect, uh, call him a hillbilly. Um, and he is, uh, he's playing uh, a resonant uh, guitar. We used to call those Dobros. That's a, uh, a brand name for the sort of guitar that he plays. And he is uh, totally taken over the measurement, uh, measured systems of pop culture. It's just been announced that he's number one on the billboard list after being, this is in the period of two weeks. He's come out of absolutely no place. Now, people have noted that he's talked about taxes. People have noted that he's talked about uh, inflation. People have noted he's talked about welfare. That's not his message. His message is very clear. He says, we are old souls in a new world. That distinction is something that needs to be very carefully considered. Um, do we want that there to be a new world which doesn't have any souls? And ethics is the topic of a soulless world. Ethics is a something that uh, the people involved with this hope can be programmed into us in much the same way it could be programmed into robots. Morality is not a program. Morality, rather, uh, is, a, is a far more fundamental process uh, which only human beings, not robots, uh, are capable uh, of 
grasping and pursuing. Uh, and so that distinction between ethics and morals is one of the important levers, I believe, that the, that the church could pursue more broadly in this discussion. Nobody else is going to do that. So it, we, we've come to an interesting jun juncture here. We've come to the point where AI researchers are recognizing their own failures. They are beginning to back away from the notion of really uh, replicating humans and are instead consciously designing non-human alien uh, type uh, uh, entities. Uh, we've come to the point where uh, the human being needs to be put back again in the center of the conversation. And when we put the human being back in the center of the conversation, morality uh, obviously becomes a, a critical part of that discussion. Um, these are components of the whole AI um, explosion, which um, uh, we probably should not be so surprised these sort of things have happened. Um, this has been, uh, been many decades, um, not centuries, decades in the coming. Um, and, uh, at, and so now we are at that point where we're, we're at that, uh, conjunction, um, when, um, so, uh, I'll just note here and, and, um, uh, and leave this, uh, for consideration. Um, my godfather, uh, was Norbert Wiener. Norbert Wiener is typically recognized as the man who invented cybernetics. In, in fact, cybernetics was invented at a party that my father attended. So that's why he's my godfather. He's my father's mentor. But what he wound up saying, he died in 64, but one of his very last interviews, the end of, of 63, there was a publication, maybe still is, called US News and World Report. And, and they interviewed uh, Dr. Wiener, and they, they said to him, uh, Dr. Wiener, is it true that the machines could take over from the humans? To which Wiener replied, yes, it is true. The machines could take over from the humans, but only if the humans are unable to muster the courage, and in particular, muster the recognition of the difference between the true that, that it is human failures that will lead us uh, to the potential um, uh, social and psychological destruction that lies ahead of us um, and it's only the humans who can turn that around uh, these processes uh, need to be understood and we need to take responsibility for ourselves in these processes. And, and those are moral responsibilities, not ethical programmed responses. Uh, and here's my concern in all of this uh, along those along those lines, which is, you know, the, the question of the technological imperative. But you talk about it's humans that are going to have to, you know, in a sense, police this and uh, roll back uh, any dystopian consequences. 
And yet in the entire history of the past, say, 200 years of the rise of technological civilization, the technological imperative that says what we have the ability to do, we should do and will do, because if we don't, somebody else will. And of course, then that gets tied up with capitalism and the profit motive. It also gets tied up with militarism and all those sorts of things. And so you get this onward, onward, powerful, crushing pressure for techno- technology. Just, it, it, like you said, it's just this vortex that has its own its own logic, its own inner dynamic, that an individual person feels absolutely powerless in the face of that. So I and so I want then I want to come back to Guardini because Guardini actually had a relatively not relatively Guardini had a, a, a dystopian vision of the future. I, I, I if you read the end of the modern world, it's it's a fairly I mean, obviously, it's it's riddled with Christian hope, but it's a hope that that something's going to emerge out of the ashes of this dystopian future that we're all headed towards. I also look to Pope Francis and wonder, since he was enamored of Guardini, and and one of the books that Pope Francis early on in his pontificate recommended was the book by Benson, The Lord of the World, which is this very dystopian vision of the future. I wonder to what extent Pope Francis himself, and you see intimations of this in Laudato Si, in his discussion of the technological paradigm, if, if he doesn't have a certain dystopian fear of, of what might be coming, that, that this might be beyond human control at this point. The similarities between Guardini, Francis, Norbert Wiener, and many others who looked at this need to be highlighted. Um, we do not have good reason for hope in the face of, of the evidence of the last couple of hundred years. So let me say something potentially controversial here. Good. Modernity was from the very beginning the enemy of the human race. And by that, I do not mean um, the uh, uh, synopsis of all heresies. I'm not talking Pius X here. You're not talking uh, theological modernism. You are talking about what the Italian philosopher Augusto Donoce talks about with regard to the essence of modernity. I'm talking about the effects of the printing press. Yes. I'm talking about the effects of electric media. And in particular, I'm talking about the need for us to retrieve a sensibility which was a far more integral one that could be called medieval. We tend to call it scribal, but there, there needs to be on a, on a interesting um, uh, uh, and, and very wide basis and probably a generational basis. There needs to be a retrieval of a very different sensibility. Now, uh, apart from technological imperative, which was a modern invention. So you you gave it a couple of hundred years and, and maybe we'll can extend that uh, a bit. But we're, we're in a, a paradigm shift today, which is already being exhibited in many ways through various generational expressions, as well as geopolitical expressions. We are actually, I believe, and, and I'm running a think tank, Center for the Study of Digital Life, it focuses 
on these sorts of issues. There is a beginning of a serious pushback against that. So my answer to you, Barry, is that the technological imperative was a feature of modernity, and we are no longer living in the modern world. Right. So that opportunity needs to now be uh, nourished. It needs to be more broadly understood. And the d- dystopian reaction uh, to all of this, which is, which is a, uh, in many ways, a, a negation of the virtue of hope, uh, that, that needs to be put in its place. If modernity were to continue, and if the imperatives associated with it, technological and otherwise, were to continue, there would be very little reason for hope. But it has already hit the wall, so to speak. We've, we've already exhausted much of that. We're being invited to bring new observations uh, into these conversations. Uh, and so someone now needs to have the courage to organize and catalyze those discussions. Where do you recognize the pushback taking place? Well, one of the more interesting places where that's happening is in China. Really? Yes. So in particular, at a superficial level, you might have noticed that the head of Alibaba, Jack Ma, who asserted the technological imperative specifically in saying, um, this is going to happen. We're going to do this. Uh, he wound up effectively uh, being removed. And for a period, he actually felt he had to move out of China, move to Japan. He has now moved back to China. And some are saying that he wants to contribute in a much more positive way, very different from the way he was approaching this a year or two ago. But the way this is most evidently seen in China today is their intense interest in retrieving the classics. So if we're, go- if we're going to summon the courage, if we're going to get our heads straight about what's going on here, we are going to have to step back before the, this modern uh, infection, which of course is, is the heart of Guardini's uh, letters, as well as his post-World War II lectures, the lectures as Larry has just indicated, first of all, the end of the modern world, which leaves it all open-ended. But then the follow-on lectures are called Power and Responsibility. And I I think if you read Power and Responsibility, they're published together now in in the English edition of this, uh, both sets of lectures. Uh, The Power and Responsibility part of this is the real nub of the issue. Are the humans going to become responsible? Now, another place where this is seen, and I'm admitting here that all of what I'm saying, there are people who take very different views about these developments. They may not dispute that these developments are happening, but they interpret them differently. And Chris and I have begun to discuss this, and and he has some experience with this in, in his current interactions with our youth. But there is an interesting phenomenon happening in what is called Gen Z. And Gen Z 
as is always the case. Um, generalizing about generations is uh, not likely uh, to be very satisfying. However, uh, one of the endeavors that my center has launched is called Trivium University. And Trivium University is particularly aimed at Gen Z. And what we have observed in this is that there is, among some, certainly not all, but um, among an, an important and dynamic element of Gen Z, number one, very sharp rejection of their previous generation, typically called millennials. Millennials are thought often by Gen Z to be lacking courage, being uh, far too lazy, being far too willing to go along. Uh, Gen Z doesn't like that. Furthermore, uh, Gen Z is fascinated with the topic of um, retrieving the past in a constructive way. And so this, of course, reminds me of ressourcement. It, it, it strikes me that what happened in the Catholic Church, which you, Larry, have personally been involved with, is this effort to go back um, and, and bring into the modern context, not simply repeating, but, but re-evaluating uh, and re-assigning uh, re um, uh, things that are not modern at all. So there is a kind of a resourcement going on in China today through their teaching of the classics, Eastern and Western classics. It has totally permeated the educational system in China. There's a kind of a resourcement now going on, in my, at least in my interactions, with Gen Z. Uh, and, and so uh, it feels to me as if the forcing of this question, what does it mean to be human, required us to get at least far enough down the path towards generating artificial humans, which uh, Father uh, Philip Larry, Dean of Philosophy at the Lateran, uh, in particular, has written a book uh, on that topic, a very interesting collection of, uh, of stories and press clippings and, and so forth. We need to take that another step or two forward. Um, we need to be uh, resourceful, and we need to remember. And we now have an opportunity that is confronting uh, a challenge. The combination of the challenge we have all been thrust into and the opportunity we have, because there really is nothing stopping us, from having this wider conversation, if if somebody had the courage to step forward and do it, um, we don't need permission of Davos to do this. We we do, we do not need thank God. The, we we don't need the permission of um, yeah, thank God exactly. We we do not need the permission of anybody uh, to allow us to step forward with this. We just need uh, some courageous leadership. I agree. Uh, people talk about um, sort of micro responses, localist responses. It's a very Catholic worker thing. But in many ways, leadership is going to be required because mac from my point of view, macro responses are going to be needed to deal with what is a really global macro problem. But anyway, Christopher, 
um, I'm going to finally turn it back over to you. I, I'm, I've been talking too much. So uh, I've been I'll let you a great time listening to you guys go. Uh, yeah, I mean, Mark talks, but then I, I should let you talk. But go ahead. Well, boy, uh, you know, and if what you want me to do is respond to uh, to Mark, I, I can do that. You can talk uh, about whatever you want. Go ahead. But uh, anybody know what the Giants are doing? Uh, <laughs> no. The um, boy, J yeah, Gen Z is a topic, and I sometimes will say things on the record and off to make it sound like I've got a down on these guys. And and for I'm those who don't know, I'm going to interrupt you just a second, Chris. For those who don't know, Chris teaches prep school. Uh, so go ahead. Yeah, I, I you know, um. They frustrate me a lot, but they, they, they do that the way, you know, that uh, my my own uh, my own kids might. Um, if if you don't care about people, they can't get under your skin. If you don't think the world about of them, they can't disappoint you. Right. Um, so uh, if any of my students happen to be listening to this or any of their parents, um, I, 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 I do love them very much and uh i do think the world of them uh, and i mean that to a man um the the they are the first generation of what are sometimes called digital natives okay correct um which comes with a whole set of problems, challenges, issues, um, and uh, sometimes uh, shortcuts, workarounds, uh, jury rigs, and other, uh, wow, the Italian has this wonderful word, acrocchi, uh, which I won't even try to translate, but it, 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 uh, if, if you were to roll a shortcut, a workaround, and a jury rig all into one, uh, as and, and include a bit of a uh, you know a, a bit of prestidigitation, like a three card Monty player, you've got what it is. Um, I'd call in English a, a life hack. They're, they're eh, I, 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 I don't. I I see what you're talking about, and I like where your head's at, but it's not. Let's not get bogged down on it. Um, the, the thing is, they're using tech, um, and I'm here I'm thinking of hardware and software, uh, and I know before I said that the internet is part of the weave of the world and it's not uh, solely or primarily a, a tool that we use. Um, and I, and I can stand by that, uh, but I, I, I'd qualify it and I'll practice a little bit of what I preach to them very frequently, which is never a uh, seldom affirm, never deny, always distinguish, right? There's a good medieval maxim for you. Um, and <clears throat> they, they don't know how to do things. Because they've got a device that can do it for them. All right. Now, 
in a situation like, you know, I, my AP history class, uh, AP Euro, I remember, I can't remember what battle it was. We were talking about what was happening and I pulled up a couple of maps and, you know, showed them the maps and, and they didn't know what they were looking at. And I realized pretty quickly that they didn't quite understand it. And I was surprised by that and asked a couple of questions about what they had, you know, what they'd done. Uh, what, who knew how to read a map and they, none of them really did. Um, and, uh, leads in, in that particular section anyway. Um, I guess that last year that was my only, I only had one section of the AP Euro guys. Um, And so I tried to sort of tease it out of them and, and get them to stretch their, their heads a little bit and, and figure out what things like, say, for example, an elevation map, uh, how that might be useful, say to a general. Right. Um, and it will, they kept coming back to me with, well, if I want to go somewhere, I just punch it into the navigator and it tells me where to go. Right. Uh, well, I told them to close their books and to get, you know, grab their jackets and to come outside with me. And we went out onto the, there's a big hill in front of the building and I split the class in two and sent half of them up the hill. Uh, maybe it wasn't my AP Euro class even now that I think about it. It could have been one of my theology sections and we were looking <coughs> at something similar. Uh, we were looking at a map for 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 similar reasons. Don't quote me on the don't don't sweat the details. Uh, let me do that. Just don't quote me on any of them. Promise, fellas. All I right. split the class in two, sent half of them up the hill and told the other half. All right, you guys link arms. Your job is to run up the hill and knock those fellas over. So what do you want us to do? I said, link arms, run up the hill and knock them over. You want us to knock them over? I want you to knock them over. Well, you know. They were winded and they didn't have much luck. So I called them back down, have them stood in a line and told the fellows who were at the top, you guys now run down the hill and knock these guys over. It was a whole lot easier. Right. And so now you have an illustration of why knowing the differences in elevation might be important. Uh, and they, they got it, I think. And they're, they're not incapable, whether it's stuck and whether any of them decided, Oh, wow, I better go and, you know, teach myself map, you know, map reading and cartography and all of that. I, I doubt, you know, uh, hopefully I planted a seed and that's the best you can do. Uh, the moral of this story is that we are only lately and we'll see whether we're in time to realize what we have lost by embracing so fully and wholeheartedly and uh, I think in many ways recklessly the uh, technological revolution. Not that it's bad to me in and of itself, um, but the expansiveness of mind, the ability to think across disciplines, areas of study, etc., uh, that just getting along in the world required, you know, 30 and even 20 years ago, uh, 
that now appears to be gone, but really isn't. That's something that we are going to have to retrieve and recover uh, on the double quick. Um, the thing that I would say, though, is that this generation, Gen Z and uh, Gen Alpha, I think is what they're going to call the next one. We need to stop thinking of these fellas as poor little lost sheep that we, you know, little lambs that we need to save. And realize that either they're partners in this and full partners or they're not. They're also the ones who are best placed to explain to us what the hell is going on with this stuff. Uh, so by all means, let's, let's press and let's insist on the urgency of this project, but let's realize that we need to be in it together because we are. I agree. I mean, as you were speaking, I was thinking I have uh, friends, uh, who sent their children to Wyoming Catholic college out in Wyoming, obviously. And you know, one of the things that they emphasize there beyond the classics, as, as, as Mark was pointing out in China, but also something that struck me as you were speaking, Chris, which is they emphasize the outdoor experience. Uh, and, and so that wasn't an exercise in teaching them about map reading or the importance of elevation. Uh, but in some ways it is. It's, it's, it's requiring of them to, in a sense, do something kinetic, something bodily, something incarnational, uh, rather than to constantly exist within the disincarnate digital world. Uh, and, and so you see little efforts like this popping up all over the place in little classical schools. But that but that only, in a sense, by way of exception, only highlights, in my mind, the fact that in the United States, I don't know, I can't speak for Western Europe or anyplace else. But in the United States, the educational establishment is dominated by complete barbarians. And, and I use the word barbarian in the sense used by John Courtney Murray to mean people who have no basic metaphysical first principles of any kind, who are absolute and complete utilitarians, have no sense of tradition, no sense of the classics, uh, jump on every latest trend, buzzword and bandwagon imaginable. And that's who runs our establishment. Is there any hope? And, and, and this is tied up then with AI and the digital revolution, because this is what they're pushing in the schools. Everybody has an iPad in their hands. Everybody this, everybody that. Anyway, so Mark, what, what do you what do you say to that? I think I think in many ways and we could probably learn a lot um, uh, using this as a lens. Um, barbarians, uh, uh, whether they're at the gate uh, or whether they're um, uh, living in caves, are um, in terms that we all understand, uh, pagans. In fact, the word pagan, as I recall, actually means people who don't live in cities, people who aren't civilized, people who are right. somehow across the countryside. So we're, we, we have been, uh, in particular, the educational system uh, has, in, in, a, in a sense that your audience may appreciate more than most, has been taken over by pagans. And it, is, is that um, how we wish to move forward? Because that is not going to raise the level of conversation and require the kind of courage for moral leadership in the face 
of this um, te- the technological imperative has now become a crisis. Yes, and uh, and so the transition from uh, pagan uh, to uh, Christian, for which we have a a, a massive um, library and, and beyond, uh, and we are in in many ways now um, recapitulating that that challenge from which we can learn a few things. Firstly, it can be done. We, we, we actually did <laughs> in, move from a, a pagan, uh, barbarian uh, organization and sensibility uh, to a Christian one. Uh, and that, uh, that sort of transition, uh, not only is it possible, because it has already been done, it, not just once, but in, in many examples. So, for instance, the Trivium, which is the name of the uh, experiment, experimental online university that we've organized, the Trivium didn't really come into shape until Alcuin uh, organized it on behalf of Charlemagne, the first Holy Roman Emperor. So why did they bother? And the answer, of course, was to evangelize. If, if you were going to convert the Lombards, and, and many, uh, uh, I imagine in your audience, are quite well aware uh, that the Lombards, uh, that, that is to say that the, the uh, uh, northwestern corner of what is now called Italy, um, they didn't convert. They, they were not Christians. They were proud to be pagans. Maybe that's the reason why uh, the home of uh, both finance and fashion in Italy it is in Milano, uh, which is uh, Lombardy. Maybe some of that has uh, persisted, as is expre- expressed in those particular fields uh, today. But, well, but- the, the, hold on. The, the, the Lombards got there late. Uh, you know, it was to, tongue firmly ensconced in chic, I'm sure, as you say that. But, uh, you know, they, let's, the lo- let's, the lo- go easy. let's go easy with the Sea of St. Ambrose. Um, well, uh, uh, we have Ambrose and, and we've got Augustine and we have a lot of interesting, uh, links back to Milano, but, uh, it didn't end there. Uh, the trivium, uh, as it was applied, uh, by, uh, Charlemagne and Alcuin, uh, went to the North. And so the Saxons, uh, also wound up coming under this. I'm merely saying that, uh, in addition to expressions of courage, in, ex- in addition to uh, expressions of, of carefully thinking through our responsibilities and powers that we have accumulated, we, we are going to need a, um, uh, a new educational canon that will help move pagans into a, uh, uh, in the West, in the Christianized uh, world and so this is more than just teaching classics uh this is this is in fact uh, uh teaching a, a very different sensibility uh my personal view here and and chris knows more about this as he is teaching these folks is that gen z is got one foot in uh or maybe multiple feet in multiple different places and so therefore becomes hard to generalize about i will be very interested as, as chris is also indicated the alpha generation and beta generation 
which are, these are names that marketeers apply uh, because they want to be able to distinguish how they're going to uh, promote their advertising and promotion uh, more broadly. Um, we uh, we probably, the three of us, won't live long enough to see the fruits of uh, mature of what we are doing today. But I'm absolutely firmly convinced that um, the while the hype over the impact of AI is a Wall Street-driven bubble-type phenomenon, the urgency uh, of, um, of what we are now going through and laying a foundation for these future generations to work with falls on us. That is our responsibility. It is not Gen Z's responsibility to um, align all of this. It is our responsibilities. Uh, and the question uh, then becomes, um, are we up to it? Well, I, I would hope so. I am going to ask for some clarification, though, from you, Mark, because I might disagree with you here a little bit. Uh, okay. I'm not so certain that I would characterize uh, what we're up against today culturally as pagan. Uh, I, I, you know, you say that we've done it before. We've converted pagans before. And that's true. But the paganism that the church confronted in the Roman world, the Mediterranean basin, it still had a profoundly developed religious sense, uh, a, a deep respect for the realm of the gods, divinity, that whole thing, a natural religiosity. Whereas it seems to me in our culture today, what we're dealing, and I write about this all the time, <clears throat> is a much more nihilistic culture, a culture with a deeply attenuated religious sense, a religious sense that is now just a tiny little ember uh, that, has, uh, that has shrunk down to almost nothing. Uh, and, and so it, it might be pagan in some sense, um, but I, I see it as post-pagan uh, and potent and post-post-Christian and and an altogether different kettle of fish. I think we're dealing with obviously the same human nature, but culturally speaking, something that we've never, ever seen before, a post-Christian paganism, a post-Christian nihilism. Uh, if, if there can be a paganism that's nihilistic, then then I would agree with you. But anyway, maybe you could comment and maybe Chris could say something, too, on this regard. Chris, if I may, and Mark, uh, uh, say no and shut up, Altieri, I want to get going. But uh, I have a, a, a similar question uh, to, to Larry's, uh, on which I'd like to press you, uh, but if I if I may first push back a little bit on on one of Larry's things, most importantly because I don't want to give the impression that I'm ganging up on you here with him. Um, not that I don't think you couldn't handle it, uh, but but um, Larry, for the I'm not sure I like the usage, although I, I I think that there's not a whole lot of daylight if there's any at all separating us on the substantive point. Uh, that you made when you were talking about uh, uh, barbarians, right? Um, I, I don't like the terminology, and I, I, I'm also not sure, for the very simple reason that the barbarians also had uh, uh, developed re what we might call religious sense. They had religion in the sense of uh, a, an idea of order, 
um, that informed their uh, societies, their actions, their undertakings, their commerce and transactions generally, right? Uh, oh, yeah. Amongst themselves and with other peoples. Um, that, well, you're that speaking... Seems, that That is the thing that seems to be missing from... Uh, Shall we the, the postmodern, if you will, post-Christian, and I mean postmodern in yeah, mostly yeah. chronological sense, right? Um, oh. One of and, and the the point of contact here that could bring us back together. And Mark, uh, I'm sorry, I'll turn it over to you. It, it perhaps is on nature. You said, "Well, we're dealing with the same human nature." I agree, Larry. Don't get me wrong, but is the notion of nature? As an intelligible category, as a, uh, I'll say it with you, as a theologumenon, oh, uh, boy. something that is accessible to folks generally today. Does our culture make nature transparent or does it render it opaque and, 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 and receding? You know, I think of the, 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 one of the things that I will sometimes say is, that the reason people have so much trouble accepting supernatural faith isn't that they don't believe in miracles. It's that they don't know what nature is. Well, they don't know what forms are, what, what the modern world has rejected are essences. So you're absolutely right, Chris, that the, there's no sense of human nature as this normative thing or this, even this essentialized thing that's identifiable. It's utterly fungible and plastic where we can manipulate our DNA through CRISPR technology and we can grow 10 heads and five arms and, and in, in the future or whatever. So it's protean. Uh, yeah. Also with regard to Barbara, I, I, yeah, it's a nomenclature thing. That's why I qualified by saying in the sense that John Courtney Murray uses it, there have been various kinds of barbarians, some better than others. <laughs> I think our modern ones are pretty bad, but, but you pointed out some good traits of some of the older ones, uh, which actually goes to my point about ancient paganism being a little bit better than what we have now. But anyway, Mark, you, do you, well, Chris, you wanted to say something more? Well, no, I'll come back to that point, but don't let me go without uh, without saying it. And I, I do have a, although I do have a hard out at 830. So, oh, a hard out. Well, uh, Mark and I can keep talking. So and anyway, uh, Mark, you want to respond to all the ideas floating around here now? Briefly, um, uh, a, a critical observation about these phenomena and the way that we're naming uh, various historic periods and, and various peoples. If we step back from that a bit, um, I'm keenly uh, aware of, of how um, the the moderns uh, wound up, particularly through the social sciences, anthropology uh, being probably at the head of that list, uh, wound up quite deliberately retrieving uh uh, the oral uh, prehistoric before writing sensibilities. So maybe barbarian, maybe pagan are, are not the best way to frame that phenomenon. But modernity retrieved in, in, in enormous and expansive ways um, the oral paradigm that preceded uh, uh, written uh, uh, 
results of, of human efforts typically identified with, with the axial age, roughly around uh, 500 uh, BC. That retrieval of the oral by the modern, I think is in many ways at the, at the base fundamental level of the issues that we're talking about. And these are issues with modernity um, and modernity <clears throat> modeling itself uh, on, on something uh, far older. Well, at least in our view at the center, we're now doing the same phenomenon we're retrieving, but we're instead of retrieving the oral slash pagan slash barbarian slash nihilist, uh, instead <laughs> of instead of retrieving that sensibility, we're retrieving a scribal sensibility, a scribal sensibility um, that has really not been seen yes. uh, for a very long time. Um, we may call it classics, but the classics were all handwritten. They weren't printed. Um, so it is the scribal retrieval that is now underway and underpinning many of the trends that we're talking about that, that gives me some potential hope as the sensibilities of the populations change under changing technological paradigms. Very good. Chris, you said, and, I, and we can talk more about that, Mark, but Chris has, has a hard break here at 8.30, but you said you didn't want to get out of here, Chris, without adding one thing. Yeah, and it's gone out of my head. Oh, <laughs> I've got it back. Right. Uh, well, our, our discussion, and we need to... to dig into this more and maybe dedicate a conversation, whether it's on the record or, uh, uh, or off to this, um, or both, uh, regarding paganism, post paganism, neo paganism, whatever the hell you want to call it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> One of the things that I've been been kicking around now, it, it struck me that the new paganism, whatever that is or means, uh, is different from the old paganism in that it explicitly rejects developed Christianity. Yes. Right. So. Um, the original wave of conversion, uh, certainly in the Roman world, was getting the message for the first time. And it seems that they liked it well enough eventually, right? Took a, took a while. Um, I think though, it, it's important to remember the, the, the last gasp of the pagan elite uh, in in retreat in in the the late age of the Roman Empire, uh, late-ish anyway, right? Um, you know the 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 sack of Rome in four ten, a uh, bunch of people flee uh, the city. They a lot of them ended up in North Africa in in Augustine's neck of the woods, right? They you know in Hippo Regius and uh, he he writes the De Civitate Dei contra Paganos. Their basic thesis, the, the core of the pagan 
uh, uh, resurgence in those days, and you know, we're not a, quite a full generation out of Cuntos Populos when uh, uh, Christianity was established as the 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 official religion of the empire. Uh, three ninety four, I believe it was. Um, cities sacked in four ten. It wasn't the functional, you know, seat of government at that point. Uh, but was the symbol of Romanitas, right? Uh, they made a big deal about the, you know, the uh, stripping of the Temple of Victory and all of that. Uh, which was symbolic, representative uh, of uh, the pagan order that they thought needed to be recovered because they thought it uh, prima facie evidence that Christianity was not a religio that was suitable to the sustain to the sustenance of the morals of a republic. All right. Now, that's precisely the charge that we now see being leveled explicitly against Christians in our day. Yes. Augustine pushed back and answered with his De Civitate Dei, which became the blueprint for, for Europe for a thousand years. All right. Uh, and it works as a project. It was his genius was that he understood what it was to be Roman, the mens romana, better than the pagans <laughs> who were praising it. Right? Uh, he was better versed in it. He was steeped in it. Uh, he, he knew it inside and out. I don't think that we have a chance, in other words, of responding successfully to the challenges of the digital world, the digital revolution, call it what you will, unless we are going to know it and live it and be steeped in it and, 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 uh, yeah. Well, know it know it better than the the futurists and the technologists and the transhumanists themselves. Hmm. Absolutely. It's a constant theme of mine that we need to know we need to know uh the worldview of our interlocutors better than they do. And we have to recognize that it is ours whether we like it or not. Yeah. And also in all, in all my talk about nihilism and a post-Christian culture, and, and, and we can debate nomenclature of paganism or whatever, there is the question, and maybe Mark could address this too, the question of just how far outside of the gravitational pull of Christianity all of this really is. We mentioned paganism, for example. The fact of the matter is you look at modern pagans, all right, uh, people who actually are in some sense religious and espouse some kind of a, a sort of Wiccan, Druidic, whatever you want to call all these new agey sort of yoga, CBD shops, <laughs> all this stuff. All right. You get the picture, the boutique shop religiosity. 
it, when you examine the, the concept of div divinity that they have, it's like, well, I believe in, you know, that the spirit world is a world of love. It's a world that is inclusive. It's a world that embraces everyone. And so and you have that's certainly not the way fourth century Roman pagans thought. All right. Not at all. The gods were capricious and arbitrary. Some they were moody and, and you had to sort of negotiate that, which is one of the reasons why Christianity was so liberating. So one does wonder, even modern day nihilists, our nihilists are like happy face nihilists who still want to talk about love and inclusion and, and all these sorts of things. And that's in its root. Is that still not within the gravitational orbit of Christianity? And therefore, is there not hope? Mark, <laughs> what do you think? No, I think you're absolutely right. The um, uh, the text that uh, comes to mind is uh, Bruno Latour's uh, uh, "We Have Never Been Modern." Um, yes. That in, in fact, uh, uh, as uh, as distorted, um, as uh, uh, damaging, um, as uh, uh, immoral. Uh, a world we now live in. Um, it still is Western civilization. It still is a part of a of a broader uh, uh, cultural and civilizational uh, uh, Western construct. This is not what is happening in India. This is not what is happening in China. Um, but in in fact, uh, we we have not become uh, so completely modern. That we have abandoned uh, all of that. So, what? Uh oh, we seem to have frozen up. Wow. Orbit uh, of the modern, and we are. I think you're absolutely correct. We are still with in the West. We're still within the orbit. Uh, of Christianity, um, as much as uh, modernity uh, uh, distorted our world, uh, uh, we are in fact now coming out of that uh, that period. Um, whether we were ever modern, which Bruno Latour would have argued against, um, uh, becomes an interesting question, particularly when viewed in the light of understanding the current world in which we live as no longer being modern. Uh, and so that the opening up to uh, this underlying uh, uh, Christian um, uh, uh, mentality, sensibility, uh, as, the, as the modern era is lifted off of our, our, our neck, in some sense it's being taken off of our necks, uh, as a result of the effects of digital technology, which are based on memory. So we're remembering our own past in a way that we've never done before. So every one of these, you're, you're both correct. Every one of these situations is a new one. Uh, drawing historical parallels can be useful up to a point. Uh, but I, I think that uh, uh, Larry has hit upon the right theme here. Which is that we have we haven't lost everything yet, 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 yet. yeah. 
Chris, you have to go, it seems. Yeah, gentlemen, I'm not going to stand on ceremony here. It's been a blast. I'd love to stay, but uh, I'm going to have a lot of splaining to do if I don't run. OK, uh, well, run so, and we'll uh, obviously so, uh, need a we need a part two of our threesome conversation here. So you go. We'll do this again. Talk to you soon. Great to see you both. Thanks, Thanks for being Chris. on, Chris. Thank you. So it's just you and me now, Mark, uh, and uh, I guess we should wrap up soon. But please finish the thought that you that you were making. The psychological impact of the most recent phase of what might be called modern or postmodern dominated by the technology of television television is a particularly corrosive psychological device it is a deliberate illusion machine <clears throat> sure is the romans did not have anything like that they they didn't take their children and sit them down in, in front of a, a, a fantasy engine as babysitters. So, so we have um, quite deliberately, uh, and if we had bothered to think about it, because many people could actually describe this, we have, we have quite deliberately blown our own brains out in, in our use of the technologies. Mm -hmm. uh, that is no longer the driving impulse in our lives. The mere fact that we could have this conversation about artificial intelligence tells us that something else other than fantasy and illusion is underway here. Robot soldiers are very real and uh, it doesn't end there. COVID demonstrated uh, to anybody who was paying attention that human workers in industry are a liability, not an asset. So we, we, have, we have come to a certain brink here. We're standing on the edge of something that we've never been at before. And, and so I'm, I'm uh, as much as um, I try at times uh, to use historical analogies. Um, you got to recognize that this is a unique situation. We humanity has never faced anything uh, uh, exactly like this uh, at all. Oh, I couldn't uh, agree more. I couldn't agree more. Uh, it's kind of one of my constant points is that we're facing a, a really unique crisis. And so the opportunity for the church, particularly if it can organize itself around a um, circle the wagons, ar around the gather everybody together, around an ecumenical uh, sense of how we all need to be discussing this in, in some detail, how we need to bring in Jewish scholars who can explain to us what the golem uh, meant uh, in, oh, in yeah. Jewish mythology and the dangers associated with all of that. Um, all we need is, is somebody to get up and, and give us a, a vivid uh, reading of Rabbi Lowe in, in the uh, uh, Prague uh, ghetto to remind ourselves. And, and there are versions of this um, that can come from multiple directions. 
And so my hope is, returning to my initial theme, my hope is that the uh, recognition of the unique uh, and um, uh, in many ways irreversible crisis that we've gotten ourselves into, this requires uh, institutional organizational courage to face. And so therefore the conversations that are now going on in Rome, um, the, the church does have various initiatives. Um, so uh, uh, that, uh, that comment um, from Chris was quite correct, but um, as is often the case, these things are happening behind closed doors. Um, you'll eventually see a, a publication uh, the Vatican had a, a, a significant effort organized, I believe, within the uh, uh, Pontifical Academy of Sciences some years ago, asking the question, uh, are the robots going to replace the humans? Um, this maybe a decade or more ago. They came up with the answer, not yet. Okay. Don't need to worry about that for the time being. Yeah. That's now behind us. <clears throat> um Trying to engage many um, uh, uh, actors, trying to recognize that we no longer live in a unitary but a multipolar world, trying to recognize that there are um, all of humanity being forced now uh, into the same um, uh, unique uh, crisis, uh, and finding the means uh, to move beyond discussions of um, mach machine ethics uh, into uh, uh, a, a anchored conversation about uh, the human moral response to ethical machines um, is, a, is a massive opportunity. We have a positive opportunity here. We do not need to wring our hands. We don't need to hang our heads. Um, we have a lot of work to do, but we have the resources, I believe, to handle these sorts of questions. Um, but it will need to be done in, in a different way and, and in, a, in a far more, uh, uh, particularly for the coming generations, the Gen Zs and the Alpha generations. They're going to look to us and what we are doing right now uh, for guidance um, as they um, uh, wind up organizing themselves and, uh, and plotting their way through the uh, terrain, uh, which is radically changed. Uh, not the same terrain any of us grew up with. We're, we're in, a, in a whole new, uh, we're in a whole new forest now. Well, we certainly are. And, uh... I mean, we, we, we probably should wrap this conversation up and do a part two with you, me and Chris to, to continue it. But th these issues that we're raising here, uh, Colin, uh, they call forth the, the question of what is the church to do? And that question is deeply related to, well, what kind of church? In other words, it's tied up with all of these currently raging debates between progressive Catholics, hyper-traditionalist Catholics, resource-mont Catholics, 
you know, con- neoconservative Catholics, all these various camps of Catholics who are all still, in a sense, in some ways, except maybe the, the Comunio Resource Month guys, the neocons, the progressives, the trads, are all still operating within a paradigm of the church that I think is still locked in. I think what maybe the printing press culture, the 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 the, the sort of post-Tridentine culture of the church. And I'm wondering if our response as a church to this great unique challenge that we now face in this digital AI revolution. I'm not talking about changing the church's foundations. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, but when we've discussed this before, it is there is a need here for a different culture within the church. Something, a re, some kind of a revolution has to happen within the church herself. It seems to me. Uh, that's why I keep coming back to Guardini. Um, Guardini's um, liturgical work, Guardini's pastoral work. Gordini's biography of Christ, all widely known, all widely praised. Guardini's work on the um, the the situation that we have put ourselves in via technology, which is unique, as best I can tell, amongst his contemporaries. That now needs a, a much more careful examination and and i have personally experienced the difficulty in in getting that uh understanding um uh particularly as it might be might have been expressed um uh, i failed uh, to pull off the guardini McLuhan uh, dialogue uh, in rome in um in 21 um but I'm not giving up. The, the church has a means, and I think it's very important that this happens sooner rather than later, in part because of the potential opportunity for Francis uh, to uh, play an important role in a Guardini revival and a discussion of this. Um, uh, in our lifetimes, in the 20th century, Guardini is the a beacon w- within the church for dealing with these sorts of questions. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy that um, we're wrapping here, and I'm looking forward to an a ongoing conversation that brings in some of the opportunities. Uh, and uh, I know Chris is also very interested in this. Chris, having spent as many years as he did in Rome, uh, yes. understanding as he does, uh, about uh, how things uh, get done, and more importantly, probably how things don't get done uh, in Rome. Um, I, I think between the three of us, we have uh, have to take on a responsibility here. Uh, yeah, I agree. And uh, I mean, this is, I think, like the third podcast you and I have done. And I I, I sense that this is going to turn into an ongoing uh, podcast, yeah. an ongoing conversation. You're an endlessly fascinating person, Mark Stallman. And uh, I, I thank you so much for your time tonight. Um, and we will definitely uh, do another one of these or two or three or four, as many as it takes to keep getting this message out there. Let's just put it that way. 
Uh, so and I, I know he's not here, but I do want to thank Chris for coming on the show tonight. I didn't do a proper introduction really to Chris. I mean, I've introduced him before, so I didn't feel a need, but I really should introduce guests all over again, I guess. But Chris did work for Vatican Radio for many, many, many years uh, to which you were alluding. And so, yeah, he knows how Rome works. He certainly does. Uh, and, and he's also a Ph.D. in politics, history, that sort of thing, teaches it bright guy. And I and I thank both of you for coming on. But we'll definitely do this again. So thanks. Do you have any last thoughts before we leave? Um, my last thoughts are um, uh, these conversations cannot be in vain. Right. These conversations cannot uh, simply be thrown against the wall and see what sticks. Um, these conversations uh, need to have an impact and we all need to cons consider um, uh, how we will make that happen. I agree. I agree completely. All right. We're Thank done you. here today. We'll do it again soon. Thanks again okay. for coming on. Bye now. Thanks.